Thank you, everyone. Have you put your crowns back on, or should we leave them off? And we'll put them on at the end of the service, shall we? So, uh, yeah, we'll still sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, I wonder how many of you have taken up the New Year's Berean challenge. That was to read the whole of the Bible, well, every day, really, because the Berean Christians or Jewish people at the time, hmm? did I? The whole of the Bible every day. Has anyone done that? Apart from Wendy? No? Yeah, the Bereans were the, the Jewish people who Paul preached to, and they checked the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So the challenge was, was to be like the Bereans and study the scriptures daily, so that you know what God is saying, but also all of his word, every word. So read the Bible start to finish. Uh, so you get the whole of the picture. So I know a couple of people have already started that, and probably some of you are already doing that already, but you, some of you have maybe started from New Year's Day reading the Bible all the way through from start to finish. Okay, let's go back to where we were last week, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now we know last week from other scriptures that this isn't the only time that a spirit comes in the form of an animal. So it's not too, it is weird, but it's not too weird. And we know from scripture that this snake is actually the devil incarnate. He's coming in the form of a snake. And we also know that the devil is not all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he has the power and ability to affect nature and to mess with our humanity in order to really steer us away from our love and loyalty to God, to our love and loyalty to him, even if we don't realise it, we're following him. So, what happened next? The snake present himself to Eve, and he, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And now when we hear God's positive instruction from God's mouth, we hear its positive simplicity. You can eat from every tree apart from one. However, the enemy turns it around into a negative. And Satan prefers to tell it like God is stingy. Did God say you can't eat any of these trees? Satan prefers you to believe that God is a killjoy. And whatever he says, it's to kill your joy, to narrow your life, to stunt you. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. Good on you, Eve. She's correcting the enemy's negative spin and putting back to God's positive simplicity. But, Eve said, God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now Eve rightly corrects the devil's negatively skewed paraphrase of God's original instruction and puts it back to its simple positivity. But then, as we looked at last week, Eve adds something to it that we didn't hear God say in the beginning. Eve added, and you must not touch it. Now, last time we looked at how important it is for every Christian to know exactly what God has said, not rely on someone's second or third hand interpretation of what God has said, because that's how 
in bad interpretations and Chinese whispers happen. When the further along the line it goes, the more distorted it gets. So that's why we need to search the scriptures daily to know exactly what God says for us. What am I hearing? Is it true? Verse 3 again. Eve said, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now apart from adding the extra bit, did God, sorry, did Eve get the must not eat and the dying bit right? Did she get that bit right? Yeah? For some reasons, unbeknown to her at the time, eating from that one particular tree would result in death, according to God. Now, does God say things for the fun of it? No? Never? Does God exaggerate for effect? You don't think so? Like a Yorkshireman, does God mean what he says and says what he means? He does? Is that why they call Yorkshire God's own country? Is it? Yeah, last time. I wonder if the first God, sorry, the first dog that God ever created was a whippet. Do you reckon it was a whippet? No? It was a Labrador. All right. So if God is like a Yorkshireman, he says what he means and means what he says, when he says he loves someone, does he mean it? Well, like totally, absolutely, no exaggeration. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's God speaking. And in John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And 1 John 4 says he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And 1 John 4.16 says, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And in Ephesians, Paul often prayed for the Lord's people, and he said, I'm praying for you that you would grasp how wide, how high, how low, how deep is it? Well, I better read it. Wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, to know how high. Do you remember that song? Jesus, love is very wonderful, so high, you can't get over it, so low. So when God says, I love you, I love you so much, I sent my only son to die in your place. Does he mean it? No exaggeration whatsoever? Did God mean what he said when he told Adam that if they ate from that single tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did, did he mean it when he said you'd die? Yes. Hmm. I wonder how the devil is going to deal with this. Because obviously the devil knows that when God says something, he means it. Next week, which is in the other, other half of this sermon you're not going to hear today, um, next week we'll probably read a little bit of what the devil did and why he fell. He knows that God is serious. He knows that when God says something, he means it. It will happen. Okay, he's first-hand experience of it. But how does the enemy handle this one when Eve corrects him and says, no, God said if we eat from this one tree and not touch it, we will die. So what does the devil do? Verse 4. You will certainly not die, or you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We've already discussed something ages ago. Sad, isn't it? Actually, well, they were already like God, weren't they? They were made in the image and likeness of God. How sad that the devil comes on and says, you're not. This is what you need to do to be like God. This is what you need to do to find your identity. Sad. What has the devil just done? Well, for starters, he's told two whopping great lies. Hold your finger there and turn to John 8, 44. John 8, 44. John 8, 44, Jesus is talking about the devil. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't go on about the devil and about hell, but they are a reality, and Jesus spoke about them uh, to warn people, basically, to make sure they knew this is a reality, this is real, you need to be on the watch. Okay, John 8, 44, talking about the devil, Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning. Now, my interpretation of that means that the devil brought death to Adam and Eve and humankind right from the beginning. He also encouraged Cain to kill his brother, didn't he? Just soon after that. But he's a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus says about the devil. Okay, so go back to your place in Genesis In our encounter with Satan in Genesis, has any truth come out of his mouth so far? None. None whatsoever. What are the two lies that Satan has just uttered? Well, the first is that God is a liar. Eve said, God told us we'll die, and he says, no, you won't. You won't die. God is a liar. When God says something, it's not actually true. It's empty with no reality behind it. Now, when you read the Bible, how often do you have those tempting thoughts that you have, have you doubting the truth, the authenticity, and the power behind God's word? How often are you reading and going, oh, I wish this was true, or oh, if only, and having those doubts that, oh, is it really, is it speaking to me? Is it about me? The enemy wants to tell you that God is a liar. There is no truth in what he says. And what's the second lie the enemy told? The second lie is whatever God says, the real reason behind it is not for your benefit, but actually to your detriment. Ten Commandments, they're to steal and kill your fun. You know? Don't follow those. Okay? They're, they're killjoys. What God said isn't for you. He's against you, really. He's, he's actually holding back from you. What you need is beyond what God says. God's instruction is holding you back from what you truly meant to be. What you really want to become is achieved by ignoring what God says. Trust me, says the snake. I'll show you the true path of enlightenment. That's what New Age does, doesn't it? other religions and things. I'll show you the true path, not the path of Jesus who said he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's so narrow. I'll show you the real way of enlightenment, whether it's the five pillars of Islam or whether it's crystals or whatever it is. 
Don't trust God. He's full of huff and puff. And anyway, what he says is all bark and no bite. You won't die. Don't take that literally. That's just a scare tactic to hold you back. Ever heard the enemy whisper to you when you're reading Revelations? This is all literal. I'm not really going to be locked up forever. You know, there's not going to be a big fight and I'm going to be the loser. That's not literal. It's all, it's all picture language. And it's not, don't take it literally. That's not really going to happen. Uh, yeah, it is. Okay. What else? Come on, listen to yourself right now. How much do you want this Eve? Surely you are worth it. Remember last week we looked at where if the devil quotes a scripture to you or something that seems true, what should you say? It is also written. Okay, yeah, but God has also said, so if the devil speaks to you about going, you're worth it. What's one scripture that might, you might be able to say, yes, but it's also written. Well, the one I came up with in Matthew 16 that says, Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Go on, you're worth it. You know, you're worth it. No, Joe. What is it good for me to go and get that and do that when I forfeit my soul, when I'm not following Jesus? Okay. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, oh no, she's got QVC vision. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave it some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It seems that Adam had been with Eve all this time. Adam, why so silent? Probably too occupied petting his whippet, maybe. Did you know that even today, the prayer of many a Christian woman is, oh Lord, I wish my husband would step up. I wish my husband would be the passionate Christian reading his Bible every day, telling me and praying for me and being the first one to lead the charge to church or a Bible study or something. Adam, why so silent? But sadly, neither Eve or Adam decided there there and then to submit to God and resist the devil, like it says in James 4, 7, because then he'll flee from you. But they didn't resist him, did they? They didn't even argue with him. They listened to him, saw it, got QVC vision and went, oh, okay. The instant Eve and then Adam swallowed the lie, they found out what it really feels like to stray away from God's simple instruction. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And what, what has happened, basically, is we've tried to cover up sin and shame ever since. Maybe the greatest cover-up attempt of sin of all time is when a society no longer sees a sinful act as a sin. Because so many people are doing it, it's now okay. And so it's no longer seen as a sin, which actually helps us feel better. It covers up our shame. And it dulls the conviction, that annoying conviction that you know, because God has given everyone a, 
conscience, that's the word, conscience. To quote, to quote Ray Comfort, con is from the Latin or whatever word to mean with, and science means with knowledge. So with knowledge. Basically your conscience is with knowledge, knowledge with you of right and wrong, what God has said. Okay, so we've been trying to cover up sin ever since. Particularly in society, we just say, that's no longer a sin, that's fine. But God never changed his mind, did he? Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from God among the trees of the garden. That's what death is. A broken relationship with God. Physical death does come at some point. It did come at some point, hundreds of years later for Adam and Eve. But death is the immediate and instant separation, a broken relationship with God. What God said would happen did happen. They were physically still alive, but spiritually dead to God. How did Jesus have the father phrase it in his prodigal son parable when the father had been separated from the son? How did the father phrase Phrase it, my son is dead. Yeah? My son was dead. When he went off, he didn't, he didn't physically die, did he? The son was still alive. But Jesus had the father saying in the prodigal son, my son was dead. That's what death is, separation, a broken relationship from our heavenly father. But thankfully... How did the father in the prodigal son parable finish off that sentence? My son was dead, but is alive again. Yeah? This son of mine was dead and is alive again. Is it possible for the human race, dead in their sins, to come alive again? Oh, the amazing grace of God. The wonderful plan of God. You know, the scripture says that Jesus was crucified from, from the beginning of the world, before the beginning of the world. It doesn't mean Jesus was crucified before creation. It means the plan of Jesus' crucifixion was already decided before he created humankind because he knew what was going to happen. Humanity would die in their relationship with him. And the only thing that could bring them back was if another son came in their place and took the punishment for them, breaking that awful curse that came into place as soon as they sinned, the curse of death, sin and death. Okay, hold your place in Genesis and go to John chapter 3, verse 16. What did God do? Not just Adam and Eve died right there and then, but humanity Death entered humanity. Sadly, through no choice of their own, every person is born dead in their relationship to God. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. To perish is to die physically still dead to God. So you're alive, a dead, dead to God in your relationship, broken in a relationship, and when you die, 
You're still dead to God. You're unconnected with God. And when you die physically, if you're still unconnected to God, you are perishing. Perish means to be given over to eternal misery. Okay, which sounds horrible, doesn't it? Apollomai is the word to perish. Okay? If a person leaves this earth in a state of deadness to God, their spirit then goes on to exist eternally in the company of Satan, who was the first one to experience this broken relationship with God eternally. Let's read verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is the complete opposite from deadness to God. It's aliveness to God, if that's a word. It's to be alive again, just like the father and the prodigal son said. My child was dead, and now he's alive again. That's eternal life. In your relationship with God, to be alive in this relationship, in this life, and of course, beyond in eternity. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes, now that word believe means to trust, rely on, and cling to. Okay? A bit, of, a bit stronger than our British word believe. It means to trust, rely on, and cling to. Whoever believes, where am I? Whoever does not, whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. However, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You're already in this deadness. You need to come alive. You need to be saved. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Is there any other way to come alive in your relationship with God? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Now, who is Jesus talking about? Himself. He is the light of the world, isn't he? Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. When God, who is light, entered the garden that evening, or the call of the day, whatever that was, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. People who are condemned, to, who are in darkness, they hide from the light. Adam and Eve hid from God. Perhaps one of the devil's best strong-arm tactics to keep people under his influence is to shame them into keeping their sins a secret. But many of us know what it feels like to come into the light and just say, our oh, hands up, I confess. Verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Just hands up. Honesty. No hiding. I've sinned. I've done wrong. Just like Jesus had the prodigal son do, the wisest thing anyone can do is run to the Father, admit you sinned against him. No excuses, just plain honest humility. When asked, when God said to Adam and Eve, and you're reading a bit more in Genesis, Adam and Eve, what have you done? When asked, Adam blamed God and Eve. Just turn to verse 3 in Genesis. Turn to verse 12. And we'll close. We'll look at Jesus and his temptation next week. In verse 12, when asked, Adam blamed God and Eve. He said, the woman you put me with gave it to me. 
Basically, I'm blaming you and her for what happened. And in verse 13, Eve blamed the snake. The serpent deceived me. And apparently, according to Nicky Gumbel, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Now, the rest of Genesis 3 describes the devastating effect of Adam and Eve's spiritual death on the rest of mankind and earth. It doesn't just affect your relationship with God, it affects everything else as well. And that's uh, the world where we live in as Christians is right now. But not, we live not of those who are dead in our sins, but now alive again in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus described dying dead in your relationship as dying in your sins. There's only two choices. You either die in your sins and face eternity separated from God, or you die in Christ Jesus. And we were able to pray for Pam this morning, weren't we? And we know Pam. She made a commitment all these years ago. I think she was 16 when she got baptised, but she said she didn't actually know what was completely happening at her baptism. It was more about church membership to her than anything else. It was only later on in her life that she really became passionate and excited about her actual faith and relationship with God through repentance and what Jesus did for her. But we can pray confidently knowing now that when Pam does die physically, she's already alive in Christ Jesus. She's not going to die in her sins, separated from God. She can look forward to the better, the next, the incorruptible world, the incorruptible body. No more, just joy everlasting. She will be crowned, like we said at the beginning. She's going to receive crowns. There's about five, six crowns, I think the Bible mentions, that we can receive in eternity. And a few more that we can actually wear spiritually right now. How do we deal with the devil when he tempts us to go his way rather than God's way? And when I say the devil tempts us, what I mean is either directly like Adam and Eve experienced and Jesus experienced, or through the general sinful ways of the world that we see and we're tempted to do. Because according to Scripture, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Okay. Let's close by very quickly looking at Luke 11.22. Luke 11.22, I haven't got this Scripture with me. Where's my Bible? Luke 11.22. When Jesus died, as we just read Whoever believes in him shall be saved. They won't perish but have eternal life, rejoined, reconciled back to God, their amazing relationship now and forevermore. When Jesus took our sins on the cross, paid for our punishment basically, our sin, our shame, even Adam and Eve's, um, Jesus did something to the enemy. What did I say? 11, 22, was it? 23? 22. Uh, Jesus said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. He's talking about the, 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 the enemy here. But when someone stronger attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divided up his plunder. You know, the enemy is still around. He's still the god of this world. But what Jesus did on the cross was he took the keys to death and Hades so that the enemy can no longer just drag everyone down to where he's going. No, Jesus has the say that those who escape have escaped Hades and death. He's got the authority now. But what Jesus did was he disarmed Satan. 
You know, we still wrestle with demons and spirits and things like that and temptations, but they've no longer got armour. They're vulnerable. When we command them to go, when we resist them, submit to God and resist them, they have to flee. They can fight, they can resist for a while, like we'll see next week, but they have to go. They're no longer strong and armoured like they used to be. Isn't that good news? Okay. Let's just... Let's just uh, I really like Psalm 51. Just turn then, we'll pray. Um, there's another scripture that says, Psalm 139.23 says, Search me, O Lord, seek me, and know if there's any wicked way in me. That's a good prayer to pray. Okay, what did I say? Psalm 51. Now, I'll read it. Bow your heads. And if you want to make this just your, your prayer of repentance, whether you've never run to the Father before and received that amazing forgiveness that Jesus paid for, and he just wants you to believe in his Son, to trust in his Son, cling to him, receive that salvation. That's all it takes is repentance and trust. Make this your prayer if you want to. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Thank you for what Jesus did for me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Don't blame it on the devil or someone else and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, that's the, what they brush the, um, the blood of the lamb when it's passed over with, and I will be clean. We are washed with the blood of Jesus. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. That's the birth, the new birth, the born again bit that Jesus talked about. You must be born again. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.